Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back to the 120th episode of Power Your Parenting Malta Teams podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Have you ever had a teen stay in their room for hours and they were actually doing their homework, but it took them so much longer than it should? I've had many parents come into my private practice and say, my son, my daughter takes four hours to get his work done and it should only take two hours. And then they're up so late and they don't get enough sleep. I have invited a guest on the show today that has some amazing research and practical tips that will literally help your teens extend their brains. Especially this past year, it's been a problem because our teens were quarantined and they just stared at their screens all day long. And at some points, their brains just clicked off and they couldn't think anymore. So let me introduce our guest today. Annie Murphy-Paul is an acclaimed science writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Scientific American, and the Best American Science Writing, among many other publications. She is the author of Origins, selected by the New York Times Book Review as a notable book, and The Cult of Personality, hailed by... Malcolm Gladwell in The New Yorker as a fascinating new book. Her TED Talk has been viewed more than 2.6 million times. A graduate of Yale University and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, she is currently a Learning Science Exchange Fellow at New America, and she is the mother of two teenage boys. Her latest book, 
the extended mind, the power of thinking outside the brain was just released. In this book, she talks about how we can extend our brains by thinking with our bodies through sensation, movement, and gesture, thinking with our surroundings through natural spaces, built spaces, and the space of ideas, and thinking with our relationships through experts, peers, and groups. So welcome, Annie Murphy-Paul. I'm so glad that you're here and can't wait to hear what you have to share. Oh, I'm so happy to be here with you, Colleen. Looking forward to this conversation. Yes, yes. Well, I know that you just have a new book that came out. It's called The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. And I have a copy of the book, but I just finished listening to it on Audible. Mm. and uh, did actually some of the things you're talking about in terms of listening and walking. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) And moms, you'll figure out what I'm talking about in a second. But um, so, Annie, can you tell me the backstory, why you wrote Extended Mind? Sure. So I'm a writer, a journalist, uh, you know, a book author and a magazine journalist who covers psychology and cognitive science. And I'd written a book about uh, the science of prenatal influences when I was pregnant with my second son. I have two sons who are 12 and 15. And then, you know, having done that kind of me search, you know, where I was really writing about what was going on in my own life, as my kids grew older and started school, I got really interested in the science of learning with really interested in what we know from scientific research about how kids learn, what the best ways to teach them are. And so for a long time, I was writing articles and thinking about writing a book about the science of learning. And I found that I kept on running into really interesting research findings in my reading that seemed to be pointing in the same direction, but I couldn't quite find the the common thread. What I'm talking about were um, findings in embodied cognition, the idea that the body is part of learning, or ideas about how the spaces in which we learn affect how well we learn, or also the, the large body of research about how our relationships, our social connections really have an impact on learning. And but I couldn't find a way to pull all these ideas together. They seem to be saying something, uh, have a common theme around, you know, that learning maybe happens differently than we think. But it was really when I came across the idea of the extended mind, which is an idea that emerges out of philosophy. And I read this article by two philosophers that was written in 1998, but I didn't encounter it until much later, that said that actually, you know, thinking doesn't only happen inside the head. It doesn't only happen inside our brains, which is how we usually think of it. Uh, Instead, we draw in all these resources from outside our heads and they become part of our thinking process. And that might be the movements and gestures of our bodies, or it might be our desk and our learning, the space where we do our learning, the classroom, or it might be a conversation with a friend or an interaction with a teacher or a mentor. And all these things are actually part of our thinking process. And when we think of it that way, we just have a much wider field for improving thinking and learning because we're not just so focused on the brain. We can think about improving and enhancing all these external resources and start to think better that way. Yeah. Well, I loved your book. I I just thought like this book must have taken like a kajillion years. (laughs) It did. It did. (laughs) Uh, I mean, there is so, it is so rich with research, Mm. but I want to really compliment you on 
that sometimes research can be really stale and boring, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you made it so wonderfully alive and rich through the power of story. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Colleen. Yeah. Yeah. No story. That's actually a lesson from the book is that we remember and attend to and understand information so much better when it's, um, presented as a story, which is something I tried to use in the book, as you say, but something that we can also use every day, you know, when we communicate with our kids or our students. Yeah. And you you took some very complicated or could have been very complicated concepts. And I loved how you just made it really simple and practical. And even how you structured the book is very, you can really remember it. It's uh-huh. very, very simple. Like, right. like you're kind of organizing the word, mm-hmm. the information in like one word, like, mm. like your chapters on a sensation or a chapter mm-hmm. on movement or a chapter on gesture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about, you use the word brain bound mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and maybe how that would relate to this past year, like with COVID? Oh gosh, I think it really does. And I've had so many occasions when I've had that thought that we're just for the last 14 months, and of course we're just emerging out of it now, we've been like brains in front of screens, you know? I mean, a lot of us have not really gone many places, you know, outside Mm -hmm. of our homes and we haven't uh, interacted with many people in person and we haven't even necessarily been moving our bodies so much because we don't we're not going to the office. We're not going to new and stimulating places. We're just for 14 months, we've been stuck, you know, uh, working, working, working in front of our screens and other zoom meeting and other, you know, so I think it's, it's, um, this book It's of course it's total happenstance when the book that the book was published at the moment when the pandemic is receding, but I think it's a moment when maybe, um, people are kind of becoming aware or have become aware that, these other resources are so important, the body, you know, new and stimulating spaces, interactions with people in person, because these were things we were kind of deprived of for 14 months. And we really, a lot of us really did feel kind of discombobulated or, you know, or um, uh, kind of worn out or, you know, there's, there's been a lot of, um, languishing as, as the psychologist, um, Adam Grant has described it a lot of, a lot of discontent and a lot of distress around the conditions in which we've had to work and in which our kids have had to go to school. And I think we've realized that without these extensions, uh, our minds just don't work as well, which is, it was almost like this giant natural experiment. I mean, I'm terribly sorry that we all had to go through it, but I do think that coming out of it, we're seeing that being locked inside our brains is not the ideal situation for thinking by any means. Right. And I thought it was very interesting because I am one of kind of bought some of these metaphors like that the brain is a muscle or the brain is a computer. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit how, about how those metaphors are limiting? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you asked about that because there are these uh, strands in our culture that are very powerful and that get employed a lot, especially in parenting and in education, like for example, grit, you know, the idea that uh, what really makes for success is mustering all this sort of internal strength and resilience, 
or the growth mindset, which suggests, as you were saying, that the brain is a muscle and we need to exercise the brain more and more to make it stronger. And, you know, these are messages that I think have some value and have some use, but they also are so focused on the brain and not on the surrounding context, you know, not, not certainly not on the body below the neck and not on these other air aspects of our environment. Um, and so that's where I think there's, that's a bit of a limiting factor with those ideas that we can get from psychology. And then more broadly, we have this metaphor that we all use almost unconsciously of the brain as a computer. And that can be a limiting kind of idea as well, because, you know, if you think about it, this, this laptop I'm using right now to record this Zoom conversation with you, you know, it operates the same way, whether it's here on my desk or if I were to take it to a park and use it outside, you know, um, it would operate just the same. It wouldn't make any, the, the setting would not make any difference to my computer, but human brains are not like that. We're actually really exquisitely sensitive to context, whether that's, you know, being inside or being out in nature or being alone or being with other people, you know, that those things really affect the way we think. So yeah. when we compare our brains to a computer, we're missing out on all these factors that affect the way our brains operate. Yes, yes. So let's get into some of the specifics chapters. So you had one chapter called Thinking with Sensation, mm -hmm. and you used a big fancy word called interoception. Right. And so you can maybe explain what that means. Sure. But, uh, and also the, I thought it was fascinating that study with the trait was it the traders and their heartbeats? Yes, yes. That right. Yes. So interoception is it is a fancy word. It's a technical word, and I think um, everyone will understand what I'm talking about if I use a much more common term, which is just gut feelings. You know, we all know what it means to have a feeling about something that doesn't seem to come from the brain, doesn't seem to come from our intellectual faculties, but is rather like a feeling we have from from deep in our bodies, and that's really what interoception is. It's the capacity for sensing internal signals, whether those are butterflies in the stomach or uh, a, a racing heartbeat. And the heartbeat in particular has become a kind of stand-in for measuring how sensitive one is, a person is to those internal signals, because there's a wide variety, actually, interestingly enough, among people. Some people are very attuned to their internal signals and sensations, and some people almost, you know, are almost completely oblivious. And so one standard test that scientists use to determine whether how interoceptively attuned you are is to say, tell me when your heart beats, you know, without putting a hand over your heart or finger on your wrist, you know, tell me when your heart is beating. And what's interesting is that some people say, oh, sure, I can do that. You know, I, I'm aware of my heart beating all the time. And other people are like, what, what are you talking about? I can't hear, I can't feel my own heart. But that measure of interoceptive sensitivity, the, the study you mentioned about traders found that uh, financial traders on a trading floor in London, they gave them this, the scientists who ran the experiment gave them the heartbeat detection test. And then they compared their results on that test to how much money they made. And they found that those financial traders who were more interoceptively attuned made more money. 
uh, and and lasted longer in this sort of notoriously volatile profession. So, you know, we think especially of something like finance as being very, it's all about how big a brain you have and how smart you are. But in fact, it was those traders who were able to listen to the prompts of their bodies who were making smarter decisions in their professional lives. I think that's just crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so would mother's intuition be interoceptive? Yeah, I love that question because, you know, being a mother, I think you, it brings, it puts you in touch with your body, right? I mean, there's the, just the um, experience of pregnancy itself is so physical and embodied. And then you have a, a, a baby who's really dependent on you to regulate their physical processes for, for so long. And, and then even as your kids get older, you're still tied to them in that very physical way. And I think it's really interesting. There's a bunch of research suggesting that the more attuned a mother is, again, to her own internal sensations and feelings, these feelings that well up from within, the more empathetic she is with her child, the more she's able to sense what her child is thinking and feeling. Mm -hmm. And also that uh, when a mother is herself in tune with her body that way, that sends a signal to, to the child that it's important to listen to your body. And it's important to be in tune with those internal signals, which is an important message to give, I think, because so much in our culture pushes in the opposite direction, you know, especially when it comes to succeeding academically or doing mental work, we think, oh, we just have to push through, you know, ignore those signals from the body. If I'm hungry, if I'm tired, if I'm nervous, I'm just going to pay no attention to that, you know, whereas that's actually a source of wisdom, those bodily signals. It's actually a source of important information that instead of quashing and sort of pushing away, we should be tuning into. Yeah. So if moms, if you could be watching us, as I'm watching Annie, she is... (laughs) her hands all over the place. (laughs) And so I think she is utilizing one of her chapters, Mm. which is thinking with gesture. Yes. It's always nice when you find scientific backing for what you do already, (laughs) (laughs) because I am a gesturer. (laughs) And, and, And maybe even how that can help teens. How could gestures help teens? Yeah. Well, here again, we have this kind of uh, bias, I think, in our culture against gesture. You know, a lot of us think of it as sort of, it's sort of gauche or like uncouth to be waving your hands around, you know, or or we think of it as really strictly about communicating with others, kind of like you say something and then your hand gestures amplify that or sort of follow in the wake of your words. But what was so interesting to me in doing the research on gesture was finding out that Actually, our gestures often express what we're about to say before we get there with our words. They're actually sort of the leading edge of our thought process. And in fact, when we're struggling to understand or explain a concept, our most cutting edge, our most advanced ideas often show up first in our gestures before we're really able to put them into words. And then by virtue of expressing that still emerging knowledge with our hands, we can kind of almost read off from our hands and that informs our our verbal account of what we're trying to talk about. So when you see your child, your, your teenager trying to grasp an idea, you can say, try moving your hands when you say that, because just the process, the practice of gesturing can help us develop a a more thorough understanding of what we're trying to talk about. Also, it is the case that gestures have 
an effect on the person listening to you. And in fact, if you're speaking with someone, they're much more likely to remember a point that you made if it was accompanied by gesture than if than a point that was not accompanied by gesture. So really using gestures is, it helps you and it helps your thinking process. And it also helps, it adds so much to the communication that you are having with another person. So I think, you know, as the more we can encourage our kids to gesture and also the more we can model gesturing for them because it turns out when people are in the presence of someone who gestures a lot, they tend to ramp up their their own rate of gesturing as well. That's great. So I hear your little kitty. Mike, yes. <laughs> Whenever I do a podcast, he thinks I must be talking to him. So he comes running in. Yes. Well, that is fine. This makes it really very real. Yes. Uh, I also... <laughs> uh, so I loved your your chapter on thinking with movement, and mm-hmm. I have several thoughts about that. And one is that I just finished my second book. It's it won't be out till next May for moms of daughters of eighteen to twenty five. But it, it just was so true. It's like I would mm-hmm. sit there and I would be typing on my computer, and then I just couldn't think of anything. My brain was mm-hmm. completely dead. Mm-hmm. And hadn't read your book, but mm-hmm. what I knew kind of intuitively to do is I would just start walking. Mm-hmm. And I, when I would start walking, like everything that I couldn't access, mm-hmm. like just was like downloaded. And I yes. would either write it on a little pad when I was walking or talking to my phone. So I would just have kind of this rhythm uh, between movement and then getting back on my computer. And so mm-hmm. that really definitely what you talk about is extending my mind because my mind was like, stop dead cold. Yes. And literally moving my body moved my ideas. Right. And so one thing I have talked to so many teens and it's just not even in COVID years, they're in their rooms and they're trying to get their homework done Mm -hmm. and they're not moving Mm -hmm. and they're just staring at the computer and it takes them forever. And their parents come in and say, you're, it shouldn't take this long. Hurry up, get it done, get it done. Why isn't your homework done? Yes. Yes. And that's a very brain bound kind of attitude, which is just drive that brain harder. You know, it all should come from within and really it's often more effective and more efficient to regulate ourselves from the outside in, which is what you were doing when you said, okay, I'm not going to sit here and drive my brain anymore. Cause that's just not working. I'm going to get up and I'm going to start walking and that you found that that worked for you. And I think there's a few reasons why that might be. I mean, one is that human beings biologically were not really made to sit still. It actually um, requires a fair amount of, of cognitive resources to inhibit the urge to move. You know, we to mm. sit still, especially for young people, takes a lot of mental energy. And that's mental energy that is then not available for applying to your work. So when you get up and move, that's released, you know, and so you kind of have more mental space to be entertaining these ideas. And then another aspect that may have been playing into it is that we're such embodied creatures. We're really, our experience of living is really comes through our bodies, you know, and that shows up in our language. So you, you can see that when people are talking about creativity, they use these movement-based metaphors. Like they'll say, if they're not thinking well, they'll say, I'm really stuck or I'm in a rut, you know, these kind of static ideas of not moving. And then when things are going well, they'll say, you know, I'm on a roll or my thoughts are flowing, you know? So one way, again, this is kind of regulating ourselves from the outside in 
is to start moving. And that in itself is a kind of loose metaphor for dynamic creative thinking. And so by moving your body, you're putting your brain in this frame of mind that's much more conducive to thinking in a really free-flowing and dynamic way. And then third, I I imagine, unless you were on a treadmill, that you were walking outside, right? And so nature is itself a really great way to extend our minds, which is another chapter in the book, you know, because it absorbs our attention in a way that's very gentle and diffuse, and it it allows us our attentional capacity to kind of replenish itself. And if we just sit there working harder and harder on our book or on our our homework, we're just drawing down, down, down that resource. And when you go outside, you're actually replenishing it so that when you get back to your desk, you have a lot more of those mental resources to apply to your work. So you have two boys, 12 and 15. So do you kind of encourage them to go outside or how do you? (laughs) I do. We talk about green time, you know, because we we all, parents, we all talk about limiting screen time and all that. But I, I also try to get them to get in some green time because, and again, that's like a double, it's killing two birds with one stone because it's movement. They're outside, they're playing, they're kicking a soccer ball around and they're outside in that really restorative kind of outdoor environment. So yeah, I try to get them outside as much as possible. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's great. I I tell my teens all the time that they should start moving or taking a break or get out or move or take a dance break, do like three songs, dance crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. (laughs) And that's fun too. I mean, that's just, that puts you in a totally different frame of mind, I think, from just sitting there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I, I definitely loved, you're right. Uh, the natural spaces was really important for me in my book. And I mm. actually went to different places that were beautiful to write my chapters. Mm, mm. Yeah. yeah, no, that was really smart from a memory point of view, because there, you know, I discussed in another chapter of the book, how much our thinking is linked to physical space. I mean, we really evolved as human beings to navigate through physical spaces. And we tend to remember where we were when we had certain thoughts. So I wonder, you know, when you were back at your desk working on a particular chapter, if you actually had thoughts of that place that you went, or did you, you really went to a different place each time and stayed there? You did all your writing in that, in that particular place. I'm just wondering if later on when you weren't in that place, if thoughts of that chapter sort of stirred memories of the particular place where you worked on it. Yeah, I think both were true. I I just found this time that's what worked best is just being in this beautiful setting, moving and just really being immersed with all those. I think the movement, the natural spaces and the writing really was a wonderful trio. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Because we can combine these mental extensions. We don't have to just use one at a time. And I think it's interesting, the idea that you were in a different place for each chapter, almost like resetting yourself for each new topic. Oh, yeah. 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 That's good. That's a cool idea. That's really good. Yeah. All right. So another one, I mean, every one of these chapters were just surprisingly little nuggets of wonderful things in each one. But the space of ideas, I think, could be really helpful, too, uh, for teens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really about our tendency to do so much in our heads. You know, we have this idea that... Um, smart people do things in their heads, you know, and if you have Mm -hmm. to write things down or if you have to turn things into objects that you move around, that's for kindergartners, you know, using their manipulatives or whatever. But actually we should be trying to get our mental contents 
out onto physical space as often as possible, whether that's a whiteboard or a bunch of post-it notes that you move around or, or a sketch or a diagram that you draw, all those things allow you to think about your, the information that you're trying to learn or, or work with in a different way and often a better way than trying to just do it in your head. Yes. Yeah. How can moms encourage their teens around that? Yeah, I think you could say, you know, if say your teen is working on a paper or a problem set that is really giving them some difficulty, you could say, let's try getting all that, all those facts and all that information out of your head and onto paper, you know, or onto a bunch of post-it notes so you can move around and figure out what order you should address each piece of information when you're writing that paper and, or even turn it into a physical model of some kind. You know, I write in that chapter about how architects and artists often build a model of what, of a problem they're trying to solve or or something they're trying to create. And that allows us to use so many of these extended mind resources, like you can move around it and get different perspectives and you can, you know, change things around and see how it looks and like all these opportunities that aren't available to you when you're just trying to do it all in your head. Yeah. Didn't you tell a story about the, uh, about DNA? Yes. I love that story. Can you tell that? Sure. Yeah. I love that story too. It's about um, James Watson, what James Watson, Jim Watson, who was the co-discoverer with Francis Crick of the, the structure, the double helix structure of DNA. And he and Crick, Watson and Crick had been struggling to figure out how these um, chemical bases, how they, how they fit together to create DNA. And they just couldn't seem to figure it out. And then in frustration, really in almost despair, um, Jim Watson decided to, um, you know, each of these chemical bases has a particular shape. So he actually cut out the shapes out of cardboard and was fitting them together. And he actually had an idea of how it was going to fit together and was trying to force it, you know, but because they were these physical objects, he could just see, um, he could see with his own eyes, like, no, that, that idea I had, that just doesn't, that just doesn't work. It's not working. So instead he just kind of gave himself permission to play with these, these shapes of cardboard that he'd cut out. And it was like an aha moment because literally before his eyes, he saw how these different cardboard pieces could fit together in this very natural and very, um, you know, a way that he didn't have to force it at all. He was just like, oh my God, that's it. And that was actually how Watson came to, Crick walked into the, um, into the room, right. As he was figuring it out. And he said, I've got it, you know, I've got it. We figured it out. And of course there was all the other kinds of research and thinking that went into it. But the thing that made the difference was turning those, that information into physical objects that could then be manipulated. Because again, human beings evolved to manipulate tools, to use real physical objects in the world. We didn't really evolve to have these incredibly uh, abstract conceptual ideas. So the more we can turn our ideas into objects that we can move around and manipulate in the, in the real world, the easier it is for us to, to make those kinds of connections and solve problems. That's great. All right. So thinking with our relationships. Mm. So I found it very interesting um, with the experts chapter that you talked about uh, imitation versus innovation. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk because, about that? Sure. Yeah, and I think you know we all have gotten this idea that in- innovation is the ultimate. You know, it's kind of the holy grail. It's like to be like Steve Jobs, the Apple founder who created 
um, completely original um, things out of nothing. And what I wanted to show there was that actually a lot of the people that we look up to as innovators were actually just very, you know, they were very skilled imitators. Um, And Steve Jobs was one of those. He actually borrowed a lot of his best ideas from other people. And we have, you know, it's almost the flip side of this um, glorification of of innovation that we have in our society is a kind of, um, we really look down on imitation. We really feel a kind of shame about it. You know, there's a lot of uh, ideas associated with it, that it's copying, it's plagiarism, it's or it's a cop-out. It's sort of like the easy way out. You're not doing your own thinking. But I try to show in the book that this is actually a pretty new idea, that actually systems of education for centuries were based on the understanding that the best way to master a subject was to emulate the people who did it best, you know, to get inside the process of creation by imitating the greats, you know, and that was the basis of education for many centuries. And it's something that it's an approach that's worth returning to now. It doesn't actually quash creativity. It doesn't actually eliminate originality. It it actually enables it because um, novices really need to develop those basic skills before they can add their own twist to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. You, you definitely, did show that well that imitation can actually save time. Right, you're not, right, right. You're not making some of the same mistakes. Right, right. Um, yeah, and so like I, I've played guitar for decades, mm. and and so I, I know that in terms of learning guitar, I also was an art major. So, mm. um, like learning things and imitating people and playing. I remember every song that I would hear, I would try to play along with those people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, after I got to some level of mastery, I didn't quit my day job, but then I could be more innovative and write songs. And so I do think that's a wonderful message for teens that mm-hmm. that this doesn't like you said, squash their creativity, mm-hmm. it actually saves them time. Right. And they can be creative. Right, right. But first you have to get inside the process to see how it's how it's done. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your chapter on thinking with peers, I think mm-hmm. this has a, this can be really applicable to teens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. In fact, teens are really the focus of this chapter because I was so struck by the fact that from what we know from developmental science, teens are especially attuned to their social environment. I mean, we, we know this, you know, that teens are hypersensitive to the social dynamics of their world. And this they're wired to do this. This is the way teens, uh, they're, they're biologically primed to be really, really attuned to the social world. And yet when teens go into school, we tell them, shut down that social brain of yours, stop paying attention to social stuff, which is, that's, that's not what we're here to do. We're here to put that aside and focus on academic learning. And then we wonder why teens are disengaged or bored by school or not that engaged by, by the academic material. So what, what I argue in this chapter is that we should be leveraging the social uh, talents, really, and interests of young people rather than telling them to put that aside when they're in school. And we can do that by bringing social activities into their learning, like, for example, having them teach their peers or teach um, younger students or having them tell stories or having them engage in debate, you know, all these kinds of 
social activities take it takes advantage of where teens natural interests and abilities are but in the service of the learning that they need to do yeah uh, I think in that chapter what kind of made me laugh a little bit was <laughs> in your research voice you started talking about the movie Mean Girls yes right <laughs> <laughs> Right. I recount the scene, which maybe people will remember Remember if they've seen the movie, where um, uh, Katie, who is played by Lindsay Lohan, she she's a new girl at the school. And the first person she meets there, a girl, a girl another girl named Lizzie, says, now here, she literally hands her a map and she says, this is what you need to understand the social world here at this high school. And, she, and the map is of where everybody sits in the cafeteria. And my point there was to say, you know, Teens may not remember, you know, this concept in math or this uh, idea from history class that you're trying to get them to pay attention to, but it's not because they lack the ability to understand complex systems uh, because every teen has effectively a map like that in their own mind of the incredibly complicated social hierarchy in their school. And if we can use that ability, which they clearly have, but leverage the social in service of learning, that's a really promising avenue for improving learning. Yeah, I love that. So do you have any more advice for moms, especially like kind of how to apply this to their teens or even to themselves? Mm-hmm. The last chapter is about thinking with groups, and that's about how important it is to find ways to sometimes submerge our, our individual identity in the identity of a group, which is what you want to do, say, in a classroom or in an organization. And we're so, we're so individualistic as a culture that we don't always pay enough attention to how do I create a sense of, of what I, you know, what I call in, in this chapter groupiness, you know, like how do we feel part of a group and not just a bunch of individuals? And there are some really interesting ways to do that. One is to engage in synchronous movement, which can be just as, something as simple as taking a walk with someone. We naturally fall into a kind of synchronous rhythm and that promotes a kind of you know, mind meld as well, because when we are moving in time with another person, we tend to uh, feel closer to them and feel more cooperative and, and work better with them. But also to have as much as possible to have experiences together, like emotional experiences, or even something like sharing a meal. This is one reason why family meals are so important. And I think, again, we've seen how difficult it is to really connect with people over Zoom over the past year. And what we should really be trying to seek out as much as possible are shared experiences that happen in the same place at the same time with everybody in kind of close physical proximity, which thank God we can do now, yes. you know, yes. uh, and trying to create as many opportunities for that as possible. Yeah. So like with teens, like a, a natural way to do that is you know, all their sports, mm -hmm. um, their mm -hmm. dance teams, their, right. and music, you know, exactly. Right. Musicals. And the, right. And that's why I think, you know, when you think about it, many of those are such enjoyable experiences, almost ecstatic sometime when sometimes when people are playing music together or dancing together and God, I mean, we've missed that. We really, we really need that. You know, we, we really need to lose our individuality once in a while and feel part of a group. And that's, it's such a, a craving, a natural human craving, I think, and one that we can, we can find room for in our lives. Yes, absolutely. And yes, the good news is that we can do that now. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, Annie, thank you so much. This is 
has been a wonderful conversation. And as you can tell, moms, there's lots of great information in this book and you can find that everywhere, probably. Yes, that's right. Thank you, Colleen. It's been so much fun talking to you. I'm so glad we got a chance. To and if do they this. wanted to stay in touch with you, how could they do that? Yes. Well, I have a website at www.anniemurphypaul.com. And that the same name is on my Twitter handle at anniemurphypaul.com. And I'm really active in both those places. So people can reach me either way. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Colleen. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.